If there's anything I love more than talking about books, it's talking to writers. For these next couple weeks in December, I'll be featuring a few South Asian writers on the show. We'll discuss in equal parts their books coming out, as well as their all-time favorites. For this week, well, is there such thing as being too relatable? Welcome to your favorite book. And I'm very excited to announce today's guest. This is Sabrit Kang-Rajiv. She is the author of Generation Zero, which will be out on December 8th. Sabrit, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I am so good. I am so excited not only to talk about the book today, but to talk to a writer and talk to you about your book coming out. This is such an exciting opportunity to connect to South Asian writers who have works coming out. And so this is going to be so much fun. I can't wait. Me too. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, Sabri, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So, hello, everybody. I'm Sabri. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a writer as my part-time job, but uh, full-time, I'm a researcher by nature. Um, I've kind of stumbled into writing, and then I am really passionate about it because, obviously, I'm an author now. But um, mm -hmm. the biggest thing that I would like to say is, um, you know, especially talking about South Asian voices uh, and being a writer myself and just being in love with books that if there's ever you know someone who's listening if they ever feel like they have a writing calling um, coming out from them just go ahead and pursue it you just never know where it's going to take you i i love that so much as someone who uh is an aspiring writer myself i mean currently in the th the ending days of NaNoWriMo um i am so excited to hear from south asian voices who have made it in the literary game and who have works out on the horizon and definitely pursue writing if it's something you're passionate about it can mean so much and um Sabrine, can you tell us a little bit about your book so generation zero reclaiming uh, my um a parent's dream. It's a uh, it's a book about the first generation, second generation, whatever generation you want to call it. Experience. Um, a couple of things about my book. It's about a family. Um, I feel like when you talk about South Asian families or a South Asian individual, you can't really. Do you have do you provide a foundation of where you come from and who mm -hmm. you came from? So the book is a combination of that. Um, it's about the first generation, second generation experience. It's about my parents um, coming over to America, um, immigrating over here, having us here. Um, I'm, I'm Sikh, I'm Punjabi, so a lot of my um, you know influences in my writing have been around um, my upbringing as well, but also like understanding the American experience in general when you have a hyphenated identity <laughs> when mm -hmm. whether you're an Indian American um, or however you want to, you know, categorize yourself. It's just um, being an immigrant here, regardless of even if you were born here, <laughs> it makes you feel uh, you're always on edge. And there's just great beauty and, um, and heartache in being two different identities at the same time. So this book is a representation of um, just a family coming here um, in not a traditional way, um, you know, and also like learning how to be American here. And also just like, what does it mean to just be a normal South Asian family uh, growing up in the 1990s. So, Absolutely. That is wonderful. And I really like that you mentioned that this is your family story. This is specific. This isn't trying to capture, you know, the entire immigration experience, which is not something you can capture in any one work. It's a multitude of stories and a multitude of experiences. So I love reading specific immigration stories. And I also like that you mentioned it's non-traditional. I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about that. But um, one of the things I'm interested in knowing is why do you characterize the, um, your parents' generation coming to the United States as Generation Zero? I know we always have that flux with the generation titles, but I'm curious as to why you consider it Generation Zero. I love this question. It's one of the reasons why I named my book Generation Zero. Um, so when you think about a South Asian individual or anyone that comes from an immigrant background, they try to understand and try to classify themselves as some type of generation. So um, when I was trying to figure that out, 
I kind of got confused. If you look at the Webster's Dictionary, it says a first generation is someone that has um, was born in a different uh, country, has relocated here now, and, and is now a permanent resident in a different country. But if you look at the Census Bureau, um, it talks about um, what first, second, third generation actually means, and it's actually different than the Webster's Dictionary. So it says mm-hmm. it depends on whenever, so a person can come over here and they can be here um, um, and that would be like the first generation and then their children, if they're born here, um, they would be second generation um, and third generation would be something different. So Mm -hmm. I never really found a consensus on a definition of what my experiences were like, but I read across all the immigration experiences and there's one thing, if you really think about it, regardless of being considered one first generation or second generation, I think I've seen in literature and a lot of people communicate their experiences in a way where it talks about how close they are to that immigration process. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I have come to understand is that regardless of wherever you go to, whether it's America, whether you go to a different country, generation zero really means going to a different country, completely starting over and starting at zero, having no family there, having no friends there, having no network really of a, or a community and understanding mm-hmm. that you can be whatever you want to be. Um, and that's why I came up with the title generation zero. And that's the, ge- the generation that kind of ties closely to like my experiences of what I am, because if you look at the Western dictionary, my parents are first generation, I think <laughs> the census bureau, I think I'm second generation. I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> but together as a family and as individuals, we're both generations that are trying to figure out the immigrant experience from their perspective, my parents' perspective, and also my perspective as uh, an American born citizen, trying to figure out what it means and not really having that guidance that we're like, um, which is why I consider myself generation zero as well. That is a wonderful statement. And that really put it all in perspective for me because I read, you know, I saw that title and I was thinking, okay, why why this choice? I thought it was a really unique choice. And really, that makes sense. I think I speak for all of us when I say that if your parents immigrated from one country to another, in many ways, they were starting from zero, whether or not they had, you know, a significant network or not. There's still such a learning curve. There is so much to figure out when you are in a new place, figuring out a new culture, trying to retain your own identity. And even, you know, being second generation, you and I are in the same boat there. You're trying to navigate your existence in a world where you come from a different cultural context. You don't have some of the same clues that some of your uh, more established, you know, friends or things like that the culture of being a South Asian second generation immigrant can also vary quite a bit. And in a way that does feel like starting from zero. So I think that's just a, a wonderful statement and really unique. I haven't really seen that phrasing before. So I think that's really interesting and unique. And so um, I wanted to know a little bit about um, as a fellow writer myself, can you tell me a little bit about your writing process? How did this book come together with you? And uh, what are some of the struggles you faced while writing it? So the writing process really, like the way that I would like to describe it is a small collection of thoughts, um, Mm kind of scattered everywhere, compiled into maybe I'm writing a book. I think I'm writing a book. Uh, Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? (laughs) Um, It's just like the whole writing process is really up in the air. It's very subjective. It depends on how an individual takes it. For me, um, you know, I had detailed books like diaries slash on on the computer in physical form about just these different experiences and different themes that I've been seeing across the immigrant experience um, and how I saw some variation between my family and the community that I'm I'm from, um, Sikh American, and just thinking about what that actually means. kept looking at the lens from like a researcher perspective. Hey, this doesn't make sense. This does make sense, et cetera. But um, mm-hmm. so it, it became a situation where I had a couple of diaries. I had some like um, notes on my computer and then I transitioned to note cards, <laughs> try to theme them. And then, you know, I was eventually, you know, talking to people, um, you know, getting an agent or whatever. Um, but really the process from where it really started was just an idea, like in a thought. And the thought was, this is what I think I want to say. This is where I don't see the representation that I would like to see. And these are, you know, the qualitative research behind what I'm seeing. Um, And really, though, 
just writing a book in general, just writing in general, it's a very emotional process. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about any type of writing that you do, whether it's fictional, whether it's poetry, whether it's nonfiction, um, sitting down at your computer thinking that you're going to write A, B, C, D, it can be like a volcano. Like, how mm -hmm. am I, I going to actually get to this? But um, for me, the way that I took it as is I, you know, had my manuscript, I called my first manuscript the vomit draft. I literally vomited every single thing that I ever wanted to say onto this manuscript. From there, you know, you really just take it out and you uh, categorize chapters. You think about like, what stories do I really want to highlight? What experiences are really important for my readers to understand? And how will they connect to me? Um, and just always thinking about like your avatar. Um, an avatar for me was, you know, South Asian woman between the ages of 18 and 35 um, mm -hmm. and thinking about why this matters to them. So the writing process is like really long and complicated, but I think what really happens is like, you're not going to always sit at your computer and have like a great paragraph or a, a sentence to write, but it comes in waves and it's like small waves. So it's like mm -hmm. whether you write it on a note card or you write it somewhere else, but just make a habit of giving yourself 30 minutes or an hour a day. I know it sounds like a lot where you just, just think about your writing. What do you want to communicate to the world? Why does this piece of literature matter? And then from there, some days it might make sense of like whatever you're writing, but some days it might just be a blank piece of paper, but at least you've given your best. And I think that's the best thing about writing in general is that when you show up for yourself, you show up for your readers. So words of wisdom right here, everybody. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love all of that. Just, you know, making that commitment for yourself, believing in the story that you want to tell. I, I love all of that. I have hardly anything to say in response, but there's a couple things I want to delve into a little bit. So the first thing, one of the things you mentioned is you saw sort of gaps in representation. And in the media, we see a lot of different um, works written by second generation people or talking about immigration stories. Um, how It might be a bit of a loaded question, but how would you say uh, Generation Zero, your particular story, how do you think it stands apart from some of the other narratives, especially about South Asian immigration? So I think the thing about Generation Zero that's a little bit different is that it talks about those experiences that aren't mainstream. So you mm -hmm. always notice when um, you're not representative when you look at the media. Um, and I've read books, I've seen stories, uh, television shows, music, uh, you know, songs and stuff around immigration, whether it be from South Asians or other individuals. But the biggest thing that I noticed is the model minority myth was working mm -hmm. against me. So what the model minority myth really is, is that you know, South Asians or Indians are considered, you know, doctor lawyers. They're, um, I call it smart Indian concept in my book, but it's like, they're all smart. They're all rich. They all know what they're doing. They had their lives figured out. It's just this model minority myth that's been in our community for such a long time. And what it really, um, if you look at that from that perspective and you look at like uh, a stereotype regardless, it's compared to like the mass population of the immigrant experience. But if you unpeel that onion and you think about the model minority myth, um, you will see that even in that South Asian experiences, it's doing a great um, disservice to individuals that don't actually have that, uh, those experiences. So my family, I don't come from a long line of doctors or lawyers. My parents are blue collar workers. Uh, my mom was a you know cashier at Wendy's. My dad um, has worked blue collar jobs. He's been a taxi driver. Um, he's also been a truck driver. So these were my experiences. And when I would read stories, I would talk about how your parents would groom you to become a, an engineer or a lawyer. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds really nice. I would <laughs> love some kind of direction because my direction was just get educated. And I'm like, well, what do I do? Because the ocean is open to me. I'm not quite sure what, um, how to actually like ride this wave here. But um, so I noticed that, you know, the, the working collar, the blue collar voices of the South Asian experience and of immigration were silent. And more mm -hmm. importantly, um, they were silent for a reason, you know, typically in the South Asian community, you don't talk about what you don't have. You don't talk about the prestige that you don't have, the money that you don't have. It's kind of hush hush, you know? Um, so as I 
just didn't see it anywhere. I'm just like, I think I maybe have to write about this because I'm like 100% sure there's a lot of other individuals like me that are out there that have, you know, blue collar, working collar uh, parents that have given them the opportunity to become those white collar professionals. Like I'm a white collar professional. Like I don't understand how my parents gave me this amazing dream, but um, just like trying to figure out like, is there anyone else like that out there? Because at the end of the day, um, you know, generations, it really is about, do you have like an immigrant story that isn't the mainstream immigrant story um, in your whatever community that you're from? And if so, do you want to talk about it? Like, it doesn't matter if you're looking for connection or representation somewhere, there is someone like you out there that has the similar experiences that you are having. Um, You just have to search a little bit for them. Definitely. I completely agree that the narrative about South Asian immigration has been taken over by a very specific group, not only the highly educated, but you can pull in a bunch of different other um, intersectional identities into that as well. We see, you know, primarily Hindu narrative, a primarily high caste narrative, a primarily, you know, economically privileged narrative. I mean, you could spend all day unpacking each of these things. But it is sort of a monopoly we've seen not only in South Asian representation, but also in our literature. Um, It's something we even see in the book we're going to really talk about today later in the episode, Well-Behaved Women, is as much as I did enjoy the book, I was constantly reminded that most of these voices are the voices of privileged South Asians, you know, upper class South Asians. And we're given a bit of that economic conflict as the book goes, but uh, for a brief period in the book, you're like, is there anybody that doesn't have money in this story? It was, <laughs> it was a lot. Exactly. And that's, that's the beauty of, you know, the differences between our experiences as South Asian, that, um, you know, being privileged, sometimes, um, unfortunately, uh, we are not, we don't know the things that we, we are oblivious to, but collectively there's like parts and pieces of any story that you read, any novel that you read, any book that you read that make you go, oh yeah, I'm right there. <laughs> but I'm not right here. Um, mm-hmm. How can I actually unpack these um, ideologies and how does that represent my experiences and as an individual? It just goes to show us that in general, we are still starving for more representation. We're still in that period where we kind of, as a culture, cling to any example of representation that we can get just because there's just not enough of us out there. We, we don't all have our image in society, but anytime you know a celebrity pops up, a writer, a show... It, that's supposed to speak for an entire monolith. And that's just not how it works. So I'm so happy to be interviewing, you know, writers like yourself who all have different nuanced stories and just gives me hope that more of these stories are entering the market. And one thing I want to ask you before we get into that is you mentioned your career as a researcher. You mentioned a little bit about qualitative research. I'm curious to know, how do you characterize your book? Do you consider it more of a memoir? Do you consider it more nonfiction in a conventional sense? I'm just curious to know how you would categorize your work. It's like you're asking me the question like I had when I was writing like two years ago, like, what am I doing? Is this going to be a memoir? Is this going to be a nonfiction? Um, Originally, I started off writing my book as a nonfiction book, um, consolidating, uh, you know, all the evidence, all the facts that I have found about South Asian experiences, um, Indian Americans, Sikh Americans in America, in particular Mm -hmm. in Maryland. (laughs) And then I realized that when I was writing from a nonfiction, fiction perspective, um, I was losing some of the the emotional gut punch that a memoir has. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes it's just easier to put a face to the story where I started writing things about the nonfiction perspective, consolidating all my evidence and my facts. And then I was like, what happens if someone feels like this? And these are some statistics around this. There's uh, some quality of work around this, the storytelling that I've consolidated. And here's some quantitative research around it. And then I'm like, but I'm missing my story. And then I realized that as I started off writing the story as a nonfiction book, that it actually turned into a memoir because that's how I resonated um, that's how I feel like I would resonate the most with my my uh, my readers um, talking about, hey, Sabrit actually had a problem. <laughs> and the problem was I was really brown. I was really hairy. And I was surrounded by all Caucasians in middle school. And I went to a Catholic school and I didn't know what was happening. Like I can state the statistics around that, <laughs> around why my experiences were particular. But I'm like, I'm just going to have to cut out the middleman and just be, and tell you it sucked. 
<laughs> so I think that's how my story and like uh, my writing evolved. It's just that personal choice that I made that I want to have stories that are really going to put my face behind um, the experiences of Generation Zero and furthermore, my family's faces behind Absolutely. Generation Zero. First of all, th- those two words, brown and hairy, you just flashed me back about 10 years of my life. And I was like, whew, do not want to think about those years, those middle school years again. <laughs> No, never. But um, like with any sort of any work where you're talking about family, you're being, you know, very open and vulnerable about the experiences your family have had. I, I have to ask, how does your family and your loved ones in general, how do they perceive your your writing? Is this something you had to keep for them, keep from them at any point? Or how did that all go down? So in the beginning, I was keeping it. I'm like, how am I going to tell my family and the people that I love that I'm writing a, you know, memoir. I knew I was going to write a nonfiction book. And I said, I was like, yeah, I'm writing a book. They're like, that's awesome. Write a book. And I'm like, crap, this is probably a memoir. So this is, now I'm in a pickle and how do I take the pickle out of the jar? So what really happens is um, you have to think about just the concept of writing in general and what ends up happening is, like I said, this story is about my family. And what are the stories that my family has talked about passed down to me from the dinner table to the breakfast table every single day of my life (laughs) and are they okay having other people read those stories I had like a conversation with my family about it Uh, I had a conversation with uh, my husband about it and just in general you know I've realized that if you have uncomfortable conversations with the people that you love and you give them the chance to just talk about their experiences of what they're feeling they always come around Mm -hmm. um so when I had these conversations, they were like, oh, well, are you going to write about this? Or you're not going to write about that, are you? And I'm like, well, what should we write about? Like, what, what would you like to hear? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, I would like to hear this middle ground. And that's how the stories have developed. Now, to be quite frank, writing a memoir, having it be published, and then also, you know, having like faces behind those stories can be quite difficult to like uh, think about, but mm-hmm. um, an experience as a family. But I think that from my experiences, I'm really fortunate with the family that I have. They have always supported me regardless of whatever I've chosen to dream about, accomplish. Um, the only thing that I would like to say is that just have those conversations with um, your family if you are writing a memoir or anything like that. Um, because especially in the South Asian culture, I can't just t- talk about my experiences alone. And if I'm bringing other people around my with me or on my journey, just um, give them the decency of a conversation. And if they don't like the if you if you don't like the end result it's okay to walk away and still like do what you want to do but in the beginning you just have to give someone the benefit of a conversation because nine out of ten times you'll learn that they're on the same path you are Mm -hmm. yeah that that's amazing so the the way to get that work across is you made it almost like a collaborative effort you were in dialogue with your loved ones talk to them about the stories you wanted to tell And honestly, that seems like the most authentic way to get that story out there. I mean, you don't want to have a whole book released behind your family's back. And you'd like to have their approval, as we'll get into with the book we're going to talk about today. Like, you'd like to have their approval and their support. And I'm similar to you in that my family's always been supportive of my art and what I like to create. But I know that not every South Asian family is like that. So I think you present a really great compromise and a really great way of involving the ones you care about in your work. So that's a great message for all of you aspiring memoir writers out there. And so, Sabrit, before we get into talking about Well-Behaved Women, the book we chose for the podcast episode, can you tell us about where we can find your book once it's out? Um, yeah, so you can find my book on Amazon, Barnes Nobles, um, just look up Generation Zero. You can also visit my website, which is sabritkangarajeev.com. Um, any indie store, it'll be everywhere. <laughs> so if there's a preference, if there's a platform that you'd like to purchase um, books from, just look out for Generation Zero. Absolutely. I will have links to Sabrit's website and where you can purchase the book. As always, support an indie if you can, but I will have links to to buy Sabrit's book. I know I'm certainly going to check it out and definitely excited to read and explore these narratives in more detail. And now what I'd like to turn to is um, the book that you chose to discuss for your favorite book. And this is Well-Behaved Women by Somia Dave. 
And this is a pretty recent book. Normally when people suggest books for me, they've been out for at least a few years or they're, you know, old classics. But this book came out, I believe, earlier this year. And so, Sabrina, I'd like to know, how did you find this book and what were your first impressions of it? So I think I found this book, I, some blogger shared about it, then um, I was researching what the message about the book was, then I realized um, the author is also psychiatric, um, and she's really amazing with all the things that she's she's done, so I reached out to her as well, but really I kind of just stumbled on the book, and the, the reason I stumbled on the book was just the title, Well-Behaved Indian Woman. I'm like, oh, okay, because I've been told to be well-behaved my whole life, what exactly is this book about? And I was very intrigued by the title, the summary and the first chapter that were available prior to launch um, really kind of uh, captured me. Um, and it became a book that, you know, you and I both like to read a lot. So we have a long list, long physical books or Kindle books around the books mm-hmm. that we're trying to read. And as soon as this book was released, it went quickly to like the number one and I finished it within a day. Like it was just <laughs> too good for me. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's one of those books. But the reason I actually chose to read it was just because I was very intrigued by the title. And more importantly, I was intrigued about the generational story between these three um, women and how they're experiencing um, just what it means to be a family, um, mm-hmm. both in India, in America, whatever. And like, as you know, we've been talking about anything that has anything around first generation, I'm obviously in it. I'm like, what is this? I need mm-hmm. to read it. Um, so it captured my attention immediately when I learned about it initially. Speaking of the title, I realized the whole time I've been calling this book Well-Behaved Women when it's in fact Well-Behaved Indian Women. So everyone, I'm a professional podcaster. Hey, can't get my title right. But Well-Behaved Indian Women, which is very important. I don't know how I missed that. But um, I'm curious to know, you read this book, you loved it, you read it in a day. Have you recommended this book to other people? Do you know if they've read it? So I like not only have I recommended it, but I physically bought copies for all of the women, like Indian women in my life, like whether it be my mother, whether it be my cousin, whether it be like my grandma, obviously she can't uh, read in English, but I've literally communicated about it strongly. Like you need to read this book because this message in this book isn't just around, you know, me, it's around the family and the way mm-hmm. that the narrative is written, the way that the story is written, it captures you from the get-go. Um, yeah. And it's just so important for regardless of if you're an Indian woman, I think in general, all women, which you have the foresight to call it that as well, is that all women should really read this book because it talks about regardless of if you're an Indian woman, a South Asian woman, or just a woman in general, the stories in this book are so compelling because throughout our whole lives, we're always told to behave and to be to be well behaved and what that actually means from our identities as um, females and also more importantly, what that means in our experiences and how we professionally carry out our work, um, our relationships that we have and stuff like that. I really like that you shared this book with other people in your life, shared it across generations, because I really think that one of the things that makes this book unique is it's not limited to a single generation's perspective, as a lot of immigration stories can be. Sometimes it's only in the view of the young second generation woman or only in the view of the stodgy, well-meaning mother or the grandmother. But here we're given, you know, a multitude of perspectives, and that really makes this book strong. So to provide everyone listening a bit of a summary of this book, so a brief couple of sentences, this is a multi-generational story that follows three women, a daughter, mother, and grandmother, and their struggles to balance societal expectations with their personal desires and goals. We're shown themes such as familial conflict, gender expectations, professional dilemmas, and overall, the myriad life experiences of this South Asian family. And so it is definitely a specific experience. It's a specific narrative. And I'll admit that when I started this book, I had a hard time sort of keying into the fact that this is more of a specific book because at first, you know, I've read a lot of multi-generational stories. And if you've read a lot of books in this vein, a lot of these themes are very familiar. Sometimes they can even border on cliche. And so for the first few chapters, I was thinking, okay, I've seen this movie before. But ultimately, it really drew me in. And I think what really drew me in is it unpacked a lot of the tropes. It, you know, gave them nuance and detail. And then ultimately, the characters were just so compelling. We're mainly given Simran and Nandini, daughter and mother, their two perspectives. We have Simran. She's an outspoken psych student. She's recently engaged to her high school sweetheart. 
And then we have her mother, Nandini, who's a dutiful, hardworking wife, mother, and family practice doctor. Um, but she has aspirations of more for herself. And so it, it's hard to talk about this book without really delving into the characters and wondering if you play favorites at all. So before I give my opinion on that, Sabrit, did you have a favorite character or a favorite perspective in this book? I totally did. But then I realized as I was reading the story, my favorite developed into other people. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, for me, Simran was my favorite in the beginning. That's where the story is starting and her experiences. But um, what I ended up taking from the book is that regardless of whoever I resonated as, like the person that was, you know, my experience is like what I'm experiencing as an individual, that I learned a lot about um the characters that were in the story around what they were going through and what their experiences were like um, without giving anything away. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, I felt like I was at a ping pong table where I'm like, oh, totally, I'm totally like simmering here. And then I'm like, oh, I kind of really like the mom now. Mm-hmm. And this grandma is, whoa, this is out of control. So it's like I kind of started developing like uh, a favorite relationship with all three women, but more importantly, just like just the way the stories were written. Um, mm-hmm. It helped me see things that, um, you know, I started that favorite thing that collected me or drew me into Simran in all three of like all three of the women collectively together. Absolutely. And that's really interesting that you mentioned, you know, liking Simran, relating to Simran. And I'm going to get to my thought on that. If I had to pick a favorite, I would go with Nandini. And I have two reasons for that. Um, The first reason being, I thought Nandini's story was, you know, multi-layered. She brought in perspectives I hadn't read before, you know, things that seemed novel to me. Um, I thought she benefited from all of her life experiences. I just thought her way of processing thoughts was really interesting. And, you know, as someone her daughter's age, I found her perspective so valuable. Like often we, we think of, you know, the rebellious child and the stodgy mom, but you never really get into mom's head and you never really think like, why do they feel the way they do? And I think this book did a great job of unpacking that. So I loved Nandini from that perspective. And the other reason is that Simran is basically me in so many ways. Like, is there such thing as a character being too relatable to the point where you, like, can't deal? (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, where it was, like, where Simran was explaining and, like, telling her story in the way that it was uh, written out. It was, t- it, it related to me a little bit too much. I'm like, oh man, I totally know what that is. Oh my God, I totally know how that feels like when she's talking about, you know, mm-hmm. um, her her boyfriend that she has in high school. I'm like, oh my God, I've married my high school sweetheart. Where's this going? Oh my God. Then I'm like, oh my God. Like she, almost I feel like I was looking at Sabri um, and the decision. But I think that really what makes Simran like my favorite character is just um, mm-hmm. her ability to voice herself, um, what she's passionate about, regardless of the community and um, what she knows can be, what, what can happen in a South Asian community when certain things make them uncomfortable. Um, she never really gunned down. She just kept marching on. And from that perspective, I was like, this is, Simran, you got this. <laughs> like, keep going. <laughs> she has a level of introspection that I haven't seen in a lot of characters. And I'm going to talk about that. But first, I have to regale you with literally, I wrote a list, the number of similarities between myself and Simran. This gets real weird. So for, for one thing, um, I'm about Simran's age. I also lived in New York for a couple of years while doing my master's degree in a counseling field with my college sweetheart. <laughs> um, we, we went to all of the same places they do in the book. They also they went on a date to the Strand and to Max Brenner. And I'm like, oh, we've done that exact date. So there was that. I also um, have writing as sort of my side hobby that I considered making into my job for a bit. Um, but then I ended up, you know, pursuing a different field and had conflicting emotions on that. I was in the middle of a master's program and had doubts in that. There was like 5 million. I could even, I could go on, but the, just the idea of these two characters, Simran and her, um, fiance Kunal living in Manhattan at the age they were at, at the stage of life they were, I was like, Oh no, they made me a fictional character. Oh no. <laughs> no, I know it, I know exactly how you feel cuz it's like when I was uh the way that everything was described in her experiences and just like her whole story um 
what, the biggest thing that I picked up on those, regardless of like the location and like what they were pursuing, I think that mm-hmm. in general, the book does a great job in explaining Simran's um, character, because I think that as South Asian individuals, um, we're kind of torn sometimes around what we should do professionally and what we should do for, um, yeah. for passion. Um, and I think that's why for me, Simran was like such a great candidate of like my favorite person because she captured my experiences completely because I feel like regardless of the model minority myth that we talked about earlier, like we are fed the mm-hmm. professional track, like you should probably do these things, but your heart sometimes drags you and pulls you a certain direction. And sometimes you turn your heart off, but, um, it was just mm-hmm. great seeing that in this character because it just made me feel like, Hey, I'm not alone. Like a lot of people are experiencing these things and they also are having these other challenges with like relationships, you know, what they're doing for school. Yeah. Um, and not to mention that I feel like almost everyone, almost all of us have somehow always been from New York. Cause I'm also from New York, but I don't know how she did this. <laughs> but I don't know what's <laughs> happening, but I feel like probably after India, New York, it's like our birth town at this point. <laughs> really like they, they're talking about going to places in New Jersey and I'm like oh I've got family there and it's like I don't live in New York anymore but I I lived there recently enough that it was like oh man like I still know all the streets they're talking about all these locations like I really felt like I was there again it was a nostalgia trip for me in many ways this book and I think one of the interesting things here without spoiling too much about the interpersonal relationships is this book takes a lot of time in talking about friendships and relationships and really giving them a lot of details. So we're taken into Nandini's marriage. We're taken into um, Simran's engagement with Kunal, sort of where they began and where they end up as a couple. I just thought the level of detail in this story was really amazing. And that's what made it rise above some of the cliches that can be told about immigration stories, because the more detail you add, the more unique and more specific you make a story. And that's what makes it rise above some of those cliches. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the bit, the biggest thing that I realized, um, and I really commend the writer for this, is that the way that the characters were developed out, they had such great, they had so much detail and it was so authentic that you can literally put your shoes in any single person, whether it be Kanal, whether mm-hmm. it be the mother, whether it be the grandmother, whether it be Simran, and being like, oh, I totally know what that's like. And, you know, empathize with almost every character and that truly comes at the gift of writing so I really want to just say that was just done beautifully absolutely there are no you know two-dimensional villains in this story everyone is a flesh even the minor characters are fleshed out they're given you know flaws and motivations and good qualities and bad qualities and you identify with all of these characters at different points you understand why they make the decisions they do, even when those decisions are particularly infuriating, which I'm not going to spoil too much, but some of these choices that some of these characters make, like, come on, just talk to each other. So much could be avoided if you just talk to each other. It's so true. Just have those uncomfortable conversations. Just talk because that's where you'll go anywhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like a thing will come up and then like a hundred pages later, they the other characters still don't know about it. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> literally just sitting there that's why I finished in a day I'm like how are these people just living here like I need to know if this is ever addressed <laughs> absolutely absolutely this is a book that you want to devour and so this is a book I I actually couldn't get a printed copy from my library so I got it on audiobook and normally I like to listen to audiobooks you know at normal speed I cranked this one up to 2x speed but both because the narrator was kind of a slow reader and also because I just had to know what happened <laughs> Me and you both. They just, I just hope they make this into a movie because I would literally go, I would book off my whole day, just like make millions of popcorn and just like watch it all day because it's just so good. I think this would actually be a really excellent movie. And this actually leads wonderfully to my next point. And this is both, you know, a compliment to the book as well as a bit of a criticism. Um, I didn't think the book was perfect. I did have a few small criticisms that I love to discuss with my Uh, with my guests. But with this particular book, so there were a lot of big topics in this story. Like we cover, um, and just as a short list, I'm not even covering everything. We get in topics, so many different taboo topics. We get infidelity, we get career changes, we get postpartum depression, we get child marriage, um, therapy, um, just 
all the idea of dirty laundry being aired out, like all these different taboos and difficult topics in the South Asian and the South Asian American community. We're given all of these and it's a lot for any book. This is not a short book, but we're still given a lot of this in the book. And so this makes me think two things. One, you know, it's a multi-layered story. That's great. But also it makes me wonder, you know, is this book, who is the audience of this book? Because in one way, this is very relatable to a South Asian audience. But on another hand, it also seems like in some ways a kind of a primer for a more Western audience, a white audience. And this is something I get conscious of the more and more South Asian stories I read. I think, who is this written for? There were a few parts in this book where things were a little over-explained, like what certain foods were, what certain, you know, holidays were, you know, clearly explained for a broader audience. And I have no problem with that on its own. But I also wonder, you know, could this book take on all of those topics and give them justice? Or was this meant to sort of be a foundational sort of introduction for Um, an unacquainted audience. And so that might be a bit of a messy point, but it's both a compliment as well as, you know, a slight criticism. Yeah, I actually really agree with that because when I was reading the book um, and since there's so many different themes and layers to the story that I did see in the writing that whether it's a holiday that's being mentioned, whether it's a food that's being mentioned, it's just being mentioned and explained for a Western audience at that surface level, but it doesn't actually talk about this is just one proportion of a holiday. This is just for these people and this experience. This is the type of food that people from this type of uh, state or mm-hmm. Indian Americans experience. It was really catered towards like, this is the Indian experience compared to it should have been, this is catered towards the Gujarati experience, mm-hmm. catered towards whatever it is. It's just some of that language was missing. And um, that would be my criticism as well, where it's like, it, it's, it's almost like a criticism, but also like a compliment where it's just like the way it's written, it does like help you regardless of what it, what uh, those messages are around the holidays or the food. It helps you understand like, oh yeah, I know what that is. But I think like to my earlier point, it's like if you're looking for those experiences and you're trying to see that representation, just having a boilerplate surface level that's written for Western audiences makes you feel a little bit invisible because you're looking for, for more meat. Mm-hmm. But it's also the nature of the story because there's so many different like themes around this that I feel like it might have been hard to do. But um, at the same time, if you really think about it, um, it the one thing that I would like to say that, um, you know, the criticism that I have, it just makes like well-behaved Indian women really monolithic Mm -hmm. in a sense like they all have these experiences um they all might have these challenges but we both know that there's some people that don't have these experiences um and just like elevating those voices as well but also I really like the book so I'm not quite sure it's like you need to start somewhere you know what I mean absolutely absolutely and I think you know it goes to show that even the most beloved books need criticism. They need to be they need to be looked at critically. There's always room for improvement. Nobody writes a perfect book. And I I really agree that you pointed out that this is a very Gujarati experience. I'm sure not even all Gujaratis would identify with this experience, but I'm not from Gujarati heritage. I'm South Indian, you're Punjabi. So it's it's a very different experience no matter where you are in India. And then similarly, the depictions of arranged marriages in the story, while that's definitely a reality for a lot of our peers and parents and the generations before, there is still that perception that all Indians have arranged marriages. I remember being asked by, you know, friends in school, like if I had to have one, if my parents had one, and I'm like, nope, my parents didn't, I'm not going to, my grandparents didn't. Like that's not a universal concept either, but books like this that sort of, you know, provide a broad slate to these topics, it makes you think that this is a universal experience when this is just one story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so another small criticism I had, and this is more just wanting a little bit more, is I wanted more of the grandmother. I... I know I loved her. The way the book is sort of framed, especially if you read like the back of the book summary where they talk about the three women and their dilemmas, you think you're going to be getting point of view chapters from the grandmother and then you're not. And I'm like, where are they? 
Yeah, definitely. I think like, that's like where I felt like my heart was breaking a little mm-hmm. bit because I really wanted to hear more from the grandmother. Because if you think about, I, I can only speak to myself. I have a very close relationship with my Nanichi. And, you know, some of the stories that she tells me and her experiences of what she's gone through have moved me so much. And I just wanted to hear like what, you know, the grandmother in this story, which what her experiences are like, and given the circumstances that she had, just wanted to hear more of her story. Because if you know anything about grandmothers in general, especially if they're South Asian, they love to talk to their, their you know, their granddaughters, yep. they love to just communicate their stories. And, um, you know, that was missing for me a little bit, I just needed more detail around that, because I've lived that experience. I just wanted to see that represented as well. Absolutely. I, I loved the the Nani in this book. She made, she reminded me of my own Amama, who is in India. And I loved the relationship she had with Simran, as well as the relationship she had with Nandini. I mean, Nandini being, you know, that in-between generation, she's a mom, but she's also still a daughter. And I thought their vulnerability was really understandable and really lovable. So I just wanted, you know, whole point of view chapters and Nani's perspective. I wanted to know how she kind of internalized the conflicts going on with her daughter and granddaughter. How did she feel about these things? How did she feel about her her work in the school with the with the children? I thought that was amazing. I wanted more of that. Like that that was all just I almost wanted to kind of cut down on some of the secondary characters, some of the smaller themes and focus more on that. Yeah, I agree. And for me, I'm just like, are you going to write another book around the grandmother? Because I need to know what's happening. Like, I need to know more of this story. You know what I mean? Because I just wanted to know more about Mm -hmm. her. Um, Because the book does such a great job explaining the relationship between the mother and daughter, and even the interpersonal relationship that um, they they did a uh, she did a really good job explaining the grandmother as well but the details that, that really made the characters for Simran and Nandini were just a little bit missing for the grandmother and I would really love to see that absolutely absolutely I you could she could just write a second book starting right off um right where the book ends I feel like that would lead into another book so nicely like uh Miss Davi if you're listening write another book I want to read it <laughs> please please <laughs> but um Lastly, I mean, speaking of the ending, like I, like we always do in these episodes, we're going to try to be spoiler free. So I'm going to speak about the ending very generally. This is my take on it. I understand that it made sense for, for Simran. I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those, the ending really made me just like, when I finished, I'm just like, wait, what? And then I kept, you know, turning the pages like, maybe there's mm-hmm. more. Like, there, was, there wasn't any more, but I, it made me... What I realized after I read the ending was I started thinking about what was probably happening afterwards. Like, I wonder, I had so many questions around where Simran was going to go, mm-hmm. like what, like just anything around the whole story. Like, I had so many questions around it and I just immediately started Googling, are you writing another <laughs> book? Because I just needed to know how the story was going to evolve. And it, it's also like it's like a love-hate relationship I think with the way that the book ended Mm -hmm. like I hated it because I needed more but I loved it at the same time because it allowed me to imagine what could happen um but also I was just like man I hate it I love it oh my god what's happening I was just totally freaking out also because I when you have a character that's so similar to you as as I've discussed Simran felt like looking in a mirror a lot of the time when she made certain choices that I wouldn't have made or different decisions, I was like, no, you're not supposed to do that. And I'm like, wait, this character isn't me. So there is a certain amount of bias involved there. Yeah, totally. And so I think overall thinking about this book, I think this is a really detailed character-driven story. It can feel basic and cliched at times, especially if you've read a lot of books in this genre. Um, I think it is, you know, sort of appealing for a broader audience and that can be both good and bad. But I think overall, this book really draws you in with its character portraits. I felt invested the whole time. It's a relatively easy read, even though it tackles some difficult topics. I certainly recommend it. Sabreet, I am so happy you brought it to my attention. This was a pleasure to read. Well, I'm, I'm really happy that you love this, uh, the book as well. And so um, it's always hard to make other recommendations based on a book that you might have loved. But if you had to pick one other book that uh, for readers of well-behaved Indian women, if you enjoyed that book, what's another book you would recommend? I totally read The Hen Artist. It 
is so good. <laughs> it is, is, you know, the story of the hen artist, like a spoiler alert. I like stories that have multiple relationships inside the storyline. Mm-hmm. So it's like the hen artist, it's about, you know, a woman and her sister and just her experiences and everything. It's just such a great story to like talk about, you know, like women and the experiences that they have in South Asian uh, environment in general. But if you're, you know, like any good story or any good book or any good TV show, when it ends, you immediately Google, I like well-behaved new woman. What can I read next? <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you Google that, like the henna artist would come up. So I would definitely recommend reading the henna artist after this one. That the henna artist has been on my list for a long time. So I'm glad you brought that to my attention and definitely a book I plan to check out. The book I would recommend, um, I focused more on thinking about mother-daughter relationships as I read this book. I love a good mother-daughter story. And so the book I wanted to recommend is takes a bit of a different direction. It's not starring a South Asian writer. Um, this is a book called Patsy by Nicole Dennis-Ben. And so this is a book I've talked about briefly on other episodes of the podcast, but essentially Patsy, um, it takes place, I believe, in Jamaica. I don't remember right now. It's been a bit of time, Um, but it basically starts out in Jamaica and features the titular character immigrating to the United States as well. So it follows her narrative as well as the narrative of her daughter who was left behind, couldn't come with her when she immigrated. And so we see these two parallel narratives taking place between mother and daughter, their strained relationship across, you know, a whole sea. And we're seeing, we're shown some really interesting concepts that don't get talked enough about in literature, the idea of reluctant motherhood. So in uh, well-behaved Indian women, we don't necessarily see reluctant motherhood, but we do see postpartum depression. And this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. And if that's a theme that interests you, uh, Patsy definitely takes that on. We're also, you know, thrown into New York, which I'm a sucker for New York in any book, but Patsy's a really wonderful, nuanced portrait of a difficult mother-daughter relationship. It has a very different tone than well-behaved Indian women, but I certainly recommend it for people who've enjoyed this book. Uh, Can I recommend another book? Because I just have a long list. (laughs) Go for it. Go for it. So also, I think it, for anyone that really liked the story about the first generation experience um, in the in this story, I think the biggest thing, I really like what we carry, uh, like a memoir um, by Maya. It talks about the mother-daughter relationship as well, mm-hmm. but it takes it on a different experience of that's not traditionally known. So it's, um, uh, it's a very good story. It's a really great memoir, and it talks about just some of these things that I think would be great if you just are in the bottom of like, um, you know, at, at the end of the book for well-behaved Indian woman and you're just looking for more it helps you like think about you know what you what could happen with um, a different storyline that's a little bit different in the Indian American first generation experience that's I'm definitely going to check that out I hadn't heard of that book before but doing a quick google as you mentioned it it definitely seems up my alley and so I'm definitely going to check that out Sabrit, thank you so much for being on your favorite book Uh, before we close out today how can we find you if we want to find you well, you can find me by just looking up my name. So sabrikangrajeev.com. Um, you can also find me on Instagram by also looking up my name. I know I'm so original, right? I need to come up with a creative handle, <laughs> but really just uh, look up my name, Sabrikangrajeev, and you can find me wherever you would like to see me. Wonderful. And everyone listening, be sure to check out Generation Zero. It'll be out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all your favorite book places, December 8th. I know I'll be checking it out. I mean, if this conversation tells us anything, it tells us that Sabrit has so much to say and so many interesting perspectives. And so definitely check this book out and be sure to look for more episodes of your favorite book every Thursday. We'll be following a few different South Asian writers during the month of December in collaboration with uh, Disha Mystery Mazepa with But What Will People Say? And so definitely be on the lookout for more of those episodes. Sabrit, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.